This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. At Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! And now it's time for Coach Hogg's locker room. Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here. Normally, Professor Ward Scott here on the Ward Scott Files here in the Jeffrey Meldon Law Partner, the only law partner in the University of Florida in the Meldon Law Studio here in the Warthog Command Center. And as you know, on Monday, we have Coach Hogg's Locker Room. And we're broadcasting today live from our studio at the Spurrier Grill. And got a great friend, longtime buddy here that uh, I know. I've known him since, I don't want to date myself, since he was a youngin', Okay. Before he was a grown-up. <laughs> I don't know if he's still, he's kept a childlike innocence about him, which I've always really liked a lot. And uh, that, that uh, is, uh, is, is fun to have people around you like that. And, and uh, Lee, Lee and I go way back. So we're going to have a good conversation today for you folks. We're really just going to follow each other. We've uh, got a lot of storytelling among us and between us and all that business. It goes way back. Some of which we'll talk about today publicly, and some pitch we might, some we might not talk about publicly. But that's all part of the game, and uh, we're going to have a good time. We don't have to call in line, but you can Facebook chat with us. We'll take a look at what you're saying. And Lee McGriff has got a really storied past, really well connected in our community, but never really played in our community. He was from Tampa, played down there. We always wish he'd come up here. So Lee, welcome to the Ward Scott Files and Coach Hogs Locker Room. Great to be with you, Ward. <laughs> it feels like we're at the gym. Just talking. <laughs> so this is great. Well, we are kind of at the gym. We've got surrounded here with all the helmets and everything, and this, is, of course, is the the the, the center of uh, of a- uh, athletic storytelling here, I suppose, in our community. I don't think it's any like anything else around. I don't know of any other facility like this that's got the the Heinzmans and the, uh, you saw yourself over there a moment ago and some relationship with something that's uh, publicly displayed here behind one of these uh, glass enclosures. And I think it was when you played with the Bandits briefly with uh, Spurrier yeah. was your coach? Coach Spurrier was the coach of the Bandits. And that's, uh, uh, we can get into that story, but it was bizarre. I, I, <laughs> I, he, he called me up out of the blue. I had been, I had not played in six years. I was in business and he had some receivers hurt. And he said, <laughs> he said, you want to play? You've been running? <laughs> and so I did. And then then the rest of the story is pretty funny, and he, he loves that story. He brings it up often. I'll be darned. He See, loves it because it was a disaster. I got hurt, and he thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to the beginning of your your uh, most interesting story. You came out – your father was a legend around here, right? Uh, 
pretty much, I'd say. What you been say? around, yeah. Been around, been around. And uh, so the obvious question is, why wouldn't you wind up here? And so you wound up in Tampa. Still. I did, yeah. My, my parents got divorced. We moved, my mother, sister, and I moved to Tampa when I was nine years old. My dad stayed here. So I still stayed very connected to Gainesville, visiting my dad regularly, frequently, spent summers in Gainesville. But uh, but my all of my growing up from nine years old on was in Tampa, all the way through high school till I came back to the University of Florida. Well, and you played down there in high school. Plant High School. Plant High School. And Plant High School was, uh, was it one of the powerhouses down there then? Or? You know. You struggling to compete? How you guys did? We, we didn't play for state championships. We had we had good teams, but not state championship kind of teams. And, and uh, John Burgess at the time, um, he is since deceased, was the, the coach. He was a running back at Florida. And there were several. It was a combination of that coaching staff. And as you know, Ward, back in the day, as you did, the coaches worked at the school. So they were all there, right, uh, right. unlike it is today. So Coach Burgess and, and staff was were made up of Florida guys and Tampa U guys. And, oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and as we know, the, the Tampa U's got a storied – Storied past. That's but, a story uh, all of itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was quite an experiment to bring football to the University of Tampa. Yes, it was. Yeah, yes, I've always was. suspected what was going on with that. It was a precursor to maybe our, our convincing the public, the community, that they could support a pro team. I always wondered if that was what they had in mind. Yeah, but you know what? It went way back. It went back, I think, into the 50s is when they were, were playing. Oh, were really? uh, Yeah. I mean, uh, a, a former Florida guy and a golden era Gator, for people who don't know the guys that played in the in the late 40s, was a guy named Cello Huerta, and he coached there. And uh, Sam Bailey and, and Fran Kersey and Earl Bruce, and there were all kinds of guys that, that, that cut their teeth and and uh, projected their careers at Tampa U. And for us guys growing up when I was in what they call junior high back in my day, not middle school um, and high school, we went to all the Tampa U games and um, they were great. They were fun. Oh, they were, they were, had some fantastic players. And for those of you who may not know about Tampa U, they really took the misfits from the other schools and made a great team out of the misfits. They got along well, but they had somehow it had a fallen out at where they were. Sammy Gilderstead came down from Alabama, the nose guard. Of course, the infamous John Matusak came from Missouri. Uh, we had the Del, Rezo, uh, Del, Del Gazo, I think Del it Gazo. was. Yep. But the really superstar, well, Leon X-Ray McQuay was, was fantastic. But you had Freddie Solomon, who went on to a great career at the San Francisco 49ers. He, he did. Freddie was a, was a quarterback and had academic problems coming out of high school, was recruited by everybody in the world, but couldn't, couldn't get in. And Tampa U had, being very diplomatic, great flexibility about what they could do with their guys academically. And Freddie was a, was, was a star, was their star quarterback. And, and I played in an all-star game with Freddie, and he was still playing quarterback, what they called the All-American Bowl in Tampa way back in the day. And um, and it ended with Freddie Solomon because the when when the Tampa Bay Bucks came in, that's when they shut down Tampa U football, which I think it's a crime because they could have been a Division Two, uh, you know what used to be called one Double A, but there was good support in Tampa and there was plenty of room to to keep Tampa U going playing football and have the Bucks. But they didn't. They shut it down. I thought it was a tragedy because so many great players had gone through there. But then they started 
the University of South Florida's football program, and mm -hmm. they still haven't reinstituted Tampa U, but Tampa U has tremendous baseball, and, and they have track, and they have lacrosse. They have all kinds of sports that are flourishing, and their facilities are actually pretty amazing, and it's, it's a beautiful private School. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And, and the only thing they're missing is football, and then they won't, I don't believe they'll bring it back. But I've always thought that's that's a shame. And, you know, in Florida, unlike a lot of other states, that we don't play the lower division uh, levels in college football. And there's a place for it because there's so many athletes in Florida that end up having to leave leave Florida if they're not a Division One player. And it's a shame. And Tampa U could have continued to fill that bill. Yes, it was a very interesting group of people, and, and uh, they were a second chance, kind of get a second chance. That was a place they could get it, and they usually took good advantage of it. I knew a lot of those guys. Uh, as I said, Sammy Gilderstead, Ron Mitchell, Ochik, uh, Noah Jackson, I think, played there. That's right. And Coach Knobloch called Noah Jackson the best offensive lineman he'd ever coached. Yeah, he told me that. Yeah, yeah. but uh, Noah was out of Wolfson, I think, if I go back to my memory. Mm -hmm. doesn't. You know, the thing about once you've been around the locker room, Coach Hall locker room, that's why I like doing it, you know, it doesn't ever leave your mind for some reason. Down in distance and who should have zigged when he zagged and all that business stays with us, doesn't it, forever? It seems uh, to. It seems to be just one of those. For one thing, it's so intense when it occurs that we uh, somehow it gets stamped into your memory whether you want it there or not. And uh, I, can, I can remember uh, how talented Leon McQuay was but how difficult he was to coach. He, he man, this guy was as fast and as good and as powerful probably oh. as Emmett Smith. He, he, he was, um, yeah, a, a, again, he was a guy academically that, that, that struggled mightily or he'd have been in a Division One school too and ended up going to Canada and, and having a – Well, first a, a he had the New York Giants. Yeah, there you go. He, he went to New York Giants. Yep. 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 But, um, no, it was, it was quite an assembly of people. And, and they went down, I think, and played Miami to a really close game. Beat Beat them, maybe beat, beat them. them. Yeah, sure did. And that was a that was a brouhaha. That was really uh, that was a beat FSU too, as I recall. Yeah, they were very 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 good. So, but these guys, a lot of them, I we've never gone back and counted up how many of them went to the pros and went high up in the pros mm -hmm. and were very mm -hmm. influential in the pros. Now, uh, Matusak was you know quite a story on his own. I, I I think I can probably tell this story. You may not know it, uh, Lee, but. Uh, uh, Kenny Staber was the quarterback when Matusak was drafted number one by uh, 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 the great coach there for the for the Raiders, you know. Uh, Madden. Madden, yeah. And um, so they took John Matusak number one. And uh, Kenny was up here talking at some group one day, and this was years ago, by the way, and I asked him, I said, Kenny, tell a John Matusak story. He says, well, there's none I can tell. <laughs> he said, well, maybe I can tell one. And so uh, he, he was up at the podium. He said, I've had a request to first tell a John Matusak story. And, and he said, uh, I had an apartment there. And, and uh, Coach Madden called me one day and said, Kenny, you got to help us out. <laughs> Kenny said, what do you want, Coach? He says, Coach, when Coach Madden called, uh, you, you helped him out. You know what I'm saying? So he said, yeah, we've got our number one draft pick sleeping in his car outside a gun range. <laughs> <laughs> He'd already built that reputation at Tampa U. Pe the people in South Tampa feared John Matusak. <laughs> Sleeping in his car outside oh, a gun range. So right. he said, "He said, well, Coach, yeah, I guess I will. I've taken him as a roommate. 
So he said, not long after that, there was a knock on the door, and he opened the door, and here stood this guy in cowboy boots, and John Matusak was about 6'9 anyway, and then he had a cowboy hat on, and then he had cowboy boots on, and he had two revolvers like the Lone Ranger on, on either side of his hips. And he said, hello, Coach Matt. said, I was your roommate. <laughs> that's wild. That's wild, and that's the only one that Kenny Staver thought he could tell. Yeah. <laughs> but he was great. I mean, you know, that guy was fit right in. And, you know, the Oakland Raiders were an extension in many ways of the Tampa Bay team. They remember all the crazy people they oh, took. Yeah. They had Jack they, Tatum, and uh, they had a heck of a team. Bunch and, of renegades, though. Yeah, all renegades, and they took it wart proudly. And Madden knew how to relate to them. He did. He knew how to keep them going. And and you know we we've got so many things to talk about. Talk, talking with Lee McGriff here, who has been a color commentator for the University of Florida for years, and he's got some uh, grandkids coming along. He wants to spend a little more time with. And he's very influential with the kids, just as his father was influential with him. I love the story you told me about Larry Libertor and your father and you. Can you tell that one? Yeah. First when, of all, you were five nine when you're in your elevator shoes. How? Yeah, yeah. And I hadn't grown any more since. Then, you know? <laughs> I keep waiting for one more growth spurt, but I'm not, I don't know if I'm gonna get it. But when I was young, uh, my dad ran track at Florida, but he was an athlete and. Uh, Love sports, and we shared that in common. And um, I grew up going to Gator games and, um, you know, sitting with my dad when the Gators came on the field, it was like sticking your finger in a light socket or something. <laughs> he, he, he just, he loved it, and it lit me up to be around him. So I grew up watching the Gators, and, and he took me when I was very young. And um, my dad coached was a professor at the University of Florida, like you as a teacher. And he really brainwashed me very effectively, <laughs> made it fun. And one of the things he, he did when starting when I was very young is he would point out people that I should watch, watch him. And then he'd tell me what it was about him that I should observe athletically and, and relate to it and take on those characteristics. And, and so the, the first person he pointed out to me, uh, so that was early 60s, so early 60s. I was less than 10 years old, was Larry Libator. And Larry Libator in his day, 5'8", five, 5'9", five, they didn't lift weights back then, so he was 135, 140 pounds. He was a quarterback. Soaking wet. Soaking wet. And... Um, so he would point him out, and Larry Libator, he was electric. He, he could just, he wasn't a speed guy, but he was so quick, fake, he had to be at that size, fake people out. And I loved to watch him play. But what my dad was able to do, because he'd been a, a, a physical education professor, he knew all the coaches. And so periodically he would take me into the locker room after the game with the Gators, and oh my God. I was in heaven, but he took me to Larry Libertor, and I was clear. I'm looking at him. This guy is not very big. Well, my dad already figured out I, I was going to be no big guy either, so he was connecting me very early, and uh, I just thought whatever I was, seven, eight years old, if Larry Libertor can play, me too. I am Larry Libertor, mm -hmm. and, and so um, forever. 
number mm -hmm, 14 mm -hmm. is, you know, etched in my heart because he was the, the first Gator that I really attached myself to. And then my growing up, my heroes were Gators, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. uh, pro football was distant, not even in, in the South, it, you know, in, in my early days. There were no teams in Atlanta or in Florida mm -hmm. or even the Dallas Cowboys. Mm -hmm. So college football was everything. And, and the Gators were forever my heroes. Well, you know, you talk about Larry Libertor. When I first came here, we all lived in these dorms. And Larry Libertor lived right around the corner from me. And the uh, first guy I ever saw on Florida Field, of course, was that quarterback, Larry Libertor. And I believe that my memory serves me what he was good at, and they maybe even built the offense around this, was the option. He would come down to the corner, and they couldn't figure out what he was going to do. And he was really good whether he's going to pitch it or cut up. And if he cut up in there, that, I don't think they found him for the first few steps after he cut <laughs> up in there, you know. Yeah. So where the heck they couldn't see him, you know. Yeah. And, and, and finally, finally found him. He had made four or five yards. Yeah. And so that's how, that sort of worked. He was the first guy that I really ever saw there. That, uh, and the other one that came along after him, that was uh, Larry Dupree. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, Larry Dupree was the real deal. Uh, not very tall. Not very big, but he was kind of a thick guy, but he was very, very quick. And he was the first that I... Tough, ran hard. He was an All-American. That's right. He made an All-American. Fullback. Fullback. Became the sheriff up in McClenny. Died not too long ago of a heart attack. Right. But uh, I remember Larry uh, Dupree was right in there with the Larrys of the world. Oh, and yeah. Very, very exciting to watch and uh, really kind of helped Coach Graves kind of elevate and attract, I think, other guys of quality mm -hmm. because... Um, the story when I came here was that uh, Coach Graves was um, destined to be a 7-3 coach. That was the way it was, you know. Well, well we just can't get over the 7-3 hump. And he came down, for those of you who know that coaches study other coaches, he came down with a reputation of being a gentleman coach like Bobby Dodd, with oh, whom he'd worked. And Bobby Dodd was a gentleman guy, gentleman coach out of Georgia Tech, but had a great winning tradition, reputation. And so Coach Graves is always in the mold of Bobby Dodd. So the fans always felt like, well, Florida just wasn't tough enough or, or somehow mean enough or missing that element, you know, that really took. Of course, you had Bear Bryant up there doing the other thing, smoking cigarettes on the sideline and, and, you know, running guys until they passed out and all that. Probably the last real hard Marine-type football camp in college that I was aware of. I mean, it was that, that was the reputation. Had the tower, look up and disdainfully look down on all the guys who couldn't get it done, you sure, know. Sure, sure. But he had Johnny Musso and people like that. So uh, that was the comparison. And then along came the guy after whom this uh, restaurant is named that changed it all. And it, it, we, it really became uh, Coach Spurrier was then – Really, a coach on the field was he not? I yeah, mean, he no, no he would he would change the plays on the field that Coach Graves sent in if he didn't think they'd work. Imagine that. It's true. You know, just to go back to the Bobby Dodd for people listening that don't remember him, but he's a legendary coach, as you said, at Georgia Tech. And back in the day, in the fifties and sixties, Georgia Tech was in the SEC, and right. and the two best teams in the SEC were. Alabama, and Georgia Tech most of the time. And Bobby Dodd and Bear Bryant couldn't have been more different, as you said. Bobby Dodd 
certainly wore his tie, gentlemanly, respectful. Kind of like Tom to Landry. Make, tried to make, tried, but tried to make football fun. You know, that goes back that, that often during a week, if he thought his team was weary, they would play volleyball instead of go to football practice. And, and so Coach Graves was a part of that coaching staff and took a lot of that on. And the point in my story, I will get to it, but that all led, it really influenced Coach Burrier. But Bobby Dodd, back when I was playing and Ray Graves had moved up to just be the athletic director. Doug Dickey was the head football coach. Ray Graves was still the athletic director. And I, I, I can remember being up in the, which was in the stadium, uh, where the coaches' offices were, and I saw this uh, slightly built older man. He had a pair of baggy khakis on and a white shirt and, and had tennis shoes on, and, you know, he was just around, and I'm thinking, who, who is this guy? Well, this guy was Bobby Dodd. Really? And he'd come up and see Coach Graves, and they'd hang out, really? and they'd go fishing. They'd Bobby go Dodd. fishing. But he was, he was around, but the reason Georgia Tech got out of the SEC is Bobby Dodd's disdain for Bear Bryant. Really? And Bear Bryant, of course, you know, as people can do after great success and get older, you can be more gracious acting when you got it rolling. But back in the day, Bear Bryant was ruthless. He was on the, on the recruiting trail. Everybody knew he'd all but cut your throat and do anything. Bobby Dodd was, let's do this right. And so, and his approach again was they worked hard, but football was still a game to Bobby Dodd and Bear Bryant, it was war. And uh, he, he could not, he could not ethically stay in the SEC, Bobby Dodd, where Bear Bryant was. And that's why Georgia Tech became independent. Refresh me, was Chick Granning at Georgia Tech? I don't know. Remember, that was a, a, a big controversy that, uh came about, I better not talk about it if I can't remember it, and I didn't, that probably you can't remember, there was a face, before the face masks really were prevalent, there was supposedly a cheap shot done by one of the players that uh, really being a big hot. it might have been George Tech, I'll have to table that and look yeah. that up a little bit, yeah. but um, yeah, yeah, there were a couple of approaches to the, to the world of football, and Lee and I have talked about this, one of the things that, of course, Influenced that generation of coaches. They'd been to war. War. They had been to war. War, absolutely. Coach Ellison, uh, Coach Knobloch, all these guys had been to war. And they viewed uh, football as a preparation for the next war. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't anything. It, if it was a game, it was only because they had to entertain the fans on Friday or Saturday. But as far as they were concerned, you guys are going to defend the nation when the next war comes. Mm -hmm. And that's right. the way it was coached. You're right. You're exactly right. And, um, I mean, there's still an element of it because, you know, when you get down to it, football still is a violent game. And, and it's a territorial and, acquisition a, game. A good one. Yeah. Good one. It is. And so the, the, the toughness, you know, may, maybe hockey is comparable, but the violence that's, that is legal and part of the game is something that you do have to go about in, in a bit of a warlike way. But, but with people like Bobby Dodd and Ray Graves and on to Steve Spurrier, you know, when Steve, uh, uh, Steve and I coached together his first year of coaching. We, we had played together at the Buccaneers uh, for a year. And then uh, 
I ended up coaching a year before Steve got into coaching at FSU with Bobby Bowden. And then Coach Dickey uh, brought uh, myself and Steve back to Florida. So Steve is Steve. Steve doesn't try to copy anybody, never did, not when he played, not when he does anything. He's Steve. That's right. And, and so when he came to Florida, he had his own ideas about how to go about things. And again, though, I have no doubt he was influenced by Ray Graves and, 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 and the way they went about things. And when he, got to, when he got there as an assistant coach, I'll never forget when he set up his office, I've shared this story with you, he had a tape deck. Well, go back to the warlike mentality, tape deck, in a coach's office, you don't listen to music. <laughs> you watch film, and you go to practice, and then you watch more film, you're not listening to music. So he set up his tape deck, which back in the day, those were no little yeah, deals right, with eight-track right, right. deals. And um, he played his mostly country music, Freddie Paycheck, I remember it. And one of his favorite songs at the time was Take This Job mm -hmm, and Shove It. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he liked to play it. Well, the, the, the old coaches were just saying, this is heresy. This is heresy. <laughs> and they would tell me, because I played – for them, for Coach Dickey and that staff, and some of those guys were older, and they'd come up to me and say, "Don't you, don't you copy him? He's not, he's not, he's not going to be in this business long." Uh huh. So I knew Steve had magic. I grew up watching him play. I played with him in the Bucks. He's always had lightning in his pocket. So, anyway, we go out to the first day of spring practice, and he wore a visor. Now, to, to younger people, you think that's nothing. Oh, that's a big you, deal. You, you didn't couldn't wear them. You didn't wear a visor yeah. to coach. You either wore no hat or a baseball hat. That's it. Visor, golf. Golf is weak. This is a nasty game. No visors. He wore a visor. He loved to play golf. He wore a visor. Oh, my goodness. Those coaches were going crazy that he was wearing a visor. So then in the next day or two, he wears a visor and shades. <laughs> you don't wear shades in oh, football God. practice. <laughs> and then during that spring at some point, he came out all of that and no socks on. No socks. Really? You, I didn't know about you, the no socks. You wear socks if you're a football. Back in the day, you had your coaching yeah, shorts yeah, and you had yeah. your uniform. And so Steve just approached it and, and his idea from the get-go even when, you know, he was just starting his career off about, we're we, we not going to hit too much. We, we, need to, we need to play good on game day. Yeah, we don't, we don't need, need to, to be beat up each other. We don't need to beat each other during yep. the week. Oh, my goodness. That is not how football was coached. You whacked each other for at least two hard days of the week. Monday was a, a little easier and Thursday, no practice Friday. But he didn't want, he didn't want that. And as he continued through coaching, he, he was uh, – way out of the box about limiting the amount of contact. It, when you had your contact periods, it, it, it was it was intense, but you don't do it too long. We're not gonna get anybody hurt. Mm -hmm. we, we're not going we're not gonna leave somebody on the sideline mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at practice. And then of course just the way he he <laughs> he saw the game and I'll give you one example. We're about that time, this is nineteen seventy uh I got. I got to think about it. Seventy-seven, seventy-eight. Excuse me. Set nineteen seventy-eight, 
And the computer deal, all the information off a computer was starting to happen then. But, but Ward, back then, they gave you a printout this high with all the stats. You know, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. are their tendencies? You know, what, on third and ten, what do they do? Blah, blah, blah. And so Steve and I were connected. He was calling the plays, and it was he and I talking to each other, and I had this big, giant computer thing. And so you were in the box? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so he would check with me about, you know, well, what's that thing say? What's that thing say? <laughs> he didn't want to look at it, but he wanted me to look at it. So this was a down and distance. It, it, was, it was third and long, as I recall. And just from watching tape, I, or not tape, it was film at the time, I, I, I knew, and I can't remember who we were playing, but, but I knew they'd be with, with a deep safety, three deep zone. We got, we got third and long. And he said, well, what's that thing say? And I said, Steve, <laughs> this is the coverage. This is the coverage. Okay. So he calls a post route right into the teeth of the, of the secondary coverage. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, this is an interception about to happen. So he calls it. And I'm not sitting down because I'm thinking oh, this is not good, even though I still, even then, knew he sees things that everybody else doesn't. Mm-hmm touchdown it was the coverage it was exactly the coverage that was on the computer sheet is exactly the coverage that we we would have thought just watching the film and touchdown so I said said, Steve what made you do that hey you know that safety and and you know we talk later about and he do like he do he he just kind of leaning leaning just a feeling Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just a feeling and that was fun to him Mm -hmm. and so you know, um, he he had a sense of the game, but he sees that game. He knows his physical. He's mm-hmm. been banged up plenty himself. Oh, yeah. But it's fun. It's a fun game to him, and he coached it that way. We're talking with Lee McGriff, who's really got a lot of storytelling, a lot of experience, very experienced with different teams, different coaching uh, positions, and different announcing positions. So we're really having a great time talking here on Coach Hogg's Locker Room. You know, I remember a story um, about Pat Dye, who was the head coach at Auburn, as you remember. And he came here, somebody brought him in to speak. And uh, at that time, Spurrier's teams were beating Auburn pretty regularly. Pat Dye didn't like it at all. Yeah. And Pat Dye said that, you know, I'll tell you something about this Spurrier. He said, um, that ain't football he plays. <laughs> he says, I look down there at my big old bears, and I look down there at his big old bears, talking about the linemen, you know. And my big old bears are dancing with his big old bears <laughs> while those little skinny wideouts are running down the field catching about a 50-yard pass for a touchdown. He yeah. said, that ain't football. <laughs> and, well. and just to complete that story, you know, Coach Nyblock always said, because there was a time when the governors and all that changed positions up there in the big you know, state capital and all, and, um, Coach Nablack knew I knew some of the political ins and outs, and he came to me and he said, I don't care who's running the state, he said, you tell them not to mess with Steve Spurrier because he has absolutely changed the SEC. Yeah, he It'll did. It'll never be the same. He did. He did. And, you know, Ward, when my son Travis was playing at Florida, played for Coach Spurrier, and – you know, he, he was in the middle of 
the, the, those great teams and everything was happening. And, and, you know, when you're playing and you're in the middle of it and you're competing and you want the ball or you want to play more, you want all those kinds of things. But I would tell Travis, you're playing at a time it'll never be like this again. Mm -hmm. It's never mm -hmm. been before. Mm -hmm. That's our guy that was a great player. He views the game. He's caught everybody off guard. They still mm -hmm. don't understand what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He makes it fun, and he is our guy. He's a gator. He's a mm -hmm. real one. He's mm -hmm. the biggest gator. Mm -hmm. And I said it, it just it was such an exciting time, and, and as great as things have happened you know, since with other really good teams, there's never been a time quite like that. No, in the no. 90s. There's never been a time when everybody had to look uh, to the top of the mountain and look up and find Florida there regularly, not just, you know, now and then. But, but it's also awarded how they did it. And I how mean, they did it. And how, how they, they did, did it. it. It was, a, it was because its Because for somebody like Nyblack, who viewed it as a war, to come to me and say, because he knew I knew Steve, and he knew, of course, I'd been with him, so he kind of knew... Plus, in his mind, I was always an English teacher, so I must be smarter than everybody else. <laughs> and that and was you crazy. Could talk. That and was you could crazy. Talk. Huh? And you could talk. Yeah, and I could spell. And spell. I That's could spell, yeah. <laughs> so he told me to go to, you know, them and tell them not to mess with Speed Spurrier. You know, that that's not that I could adjust. The really great coaches can adjust. And he adjusted to that. He saw that, hey, this is the, where we are now, and this is, and, you know, we've got a great player that watches this, and that's Eddie McShann III. He's generally watching us from out of Atlanta, where Eddie lives, and I, I know he checked on yesterday enthusiastically about you coming on the show, so Eddie's either watching live right now or he's going to be watching later. Well, by the way, Eddie, you don't know me, but I know all about you growing up. Eddie McShann was a fabulous athlete, both football and basketball. Eddie so I Mc think that's really cool he listens to this. Yeah, Eddie McShann, I'd love to – I guess I'd have to do a Zoom with him, but – Nye Black saw this, and he saw, man, we're going to go with Eddie, and we're going to throw that ball down the field. And uh, it, changed, it changed everything. And, and so he could adjust. The great coaches can adjust. And um, so Eddie was, Eddie was the most exciting thing that I, you know, player and all that I'd ever been around personally on a field. Mm -hmm. uh, we had some other guys that got, got better. Richard Williams, I think, went on to the Cincinnati Bengals. I coached Richard as a young one. But I learned a lot from being around them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's all part of it. That's, um, you watch these guys, and obviously Steve saw something he didn't want to imitate and something he did want to. But Steve, like you say, Steve's his own guy. He doesn't ever do anything but what it's Steve's way. And You, you know, Ward, to make that point, and most people don't understand it, so the circumstances why Steve got a chance to coach is that Coach Dickey had, had kind of reached a, a stalemate here at Florida and it, it, it was going on in football, but running option football, running the wishbone, and things had had uh, kind of gotten stuck. Coach Dickey, we, we had really good teams, 73, 74, 75, 76, but could not turn the corner and go ahead and win the SEC championship. But we had great players and, and won a lot of games, but he just didn't turn the corner. And then in 77 – um, Coach Dickey had still a lot of talented players. 13, 13 guys got drafted off that 77 team, but they weren't even 500. It was, it was coming unglued. People were getting restless. They wanted a different style of play because things were evolving away from just the pure option football. And so he, Coach Dickey was told that he had to change his offense and, and get a couple of different coaches. 
Well, he picked Steve Spurrier, who never coached any, and he picked Lee McGriff, who had coached one year. <laughs> and and so, but he but he he turned Steve loose, and um, Steve to this day loves Doug Dickey for that opportunity. Oh, that's right, because that's right. that opened the door for him. Right. But the end result, even though we really did do some things offensively that were exciting, and we were close in a lot of games, but we were four and seven. Coach Dickey gets fired, so I was in some ways fortunate, in some way unfortunate, but Charlie Pell came in and kept me, so I stayed at Florida. Steve was fired, not rehired. Uh, Charlie Pell didn't want Steve, so Steve then went to Georgia Tech with Pepper Rogers. Pepper Rogers was struggling at Georgia Tech, which is why he brought Steve on. Got fired again. Steve changed the Georgia Tech offense. They were running the option, changed it, did great things. They didn't win enough games, fired. So he's 0 for 2, and then he goes to Duke. And, and you know, and again, some of these older coaches that stayed in touch with me say, see, you know, he can't keep a job. He's just Georgia oh, I Tech. I heard all that all the Duke, time, yeah, yeah. Duke, Duke, you know, he can't. He didn't, didn't prepare get like he should. Well, but my point is he's getting fired. Ward, he didn't change a lick. He didn't right. second-guess himself. He stuck with his style. He is the original. He's the original. And uh, he just kept doing what he was doing, didn't consider changing how he do it, did it, and then it clicked. And, and obviously where it really clicked was when he came back to Duke. Um, and uh, I guess first as an offensive coordinator and then uh, as the head coach, and then he went to the Bandits, and it clicked there too, and he just kept right on going. But he never changed. It's not like right, right. I'm not, I'm getting fired. Let, let me do it differently. He didn't. Well, let me let me before we take a break. I think we got our, our production so so enraptured here that we may be going a little bit over the break. But um, what you what I've been thinking is I've listened to you talk about the rejection after rejection after rejection, but sticking with who you are is a pretty common story in the writing world, which is how I'm trained, is writing. You get rejected, and you get rejected, and you get rejected, but you know what you're doing. I'll give you a good example. A separate piece written by John Knowles was acclaimed, and still is, as a classic, all right? It's a classic tale. It's right in there with Catcher in the Rye, except the reason it sells better than Catcher in the Rye, there's no four-letter words anywhere in the book. It's about a prep school, and uh, John Knowles, a very good friend of mine, he told me, and this kind of all of a sudden is connected in my mind about Steve, and he's dead now, but he had a mountain, mountain of a reputation. Separate piece was rejected by every publishing house in New York, okay? Every publishing house said, well, there's not enough action in it. Or there's not enough this or that. Every one of them had a complaint. They all knew. All these editors all knew. So he took the book to England. England said, this is about a prep school. England's about prep schools. England said, man, we'll print this. And it went off the charts mm. in sales. He brought it back then. Oh, now New York wanted it. They wanted it all over the place. And New York picked it up. It's been an, a, a classic forever. You take a look at it, a separate piece by John Knowles rejected every single house in New York, but which he, was the only place then you could get something published. Yeah, but he was him, 
through thick and thin. He knew what he was doing. He knew the craft, and and um, he knew the story. And I asked him when he wrote it. He, he worked for Collier's then as a, some sort of editor for Collier's for articles. And he said he would go to work early, and he would spend an hour before work writing on a separate piece. Hmm. And that's the only time he had to work on it. Wow. So let's, let's, let's thank our sponsors and our, our donors for a minute here. We've been having an engaging conversation as I knew we would have because we're not even beginning to scrape the surface of all the things that we probably could just spin yarns with you about, and we invite you to bear with us a little while longer, and we'll entertain you some more, hopefully, and maybe educate you because there's a big lesson here that we're talking about, and that is knowing who you are, sticking with what you're doing, and just keep on going, and maybe the world will come to you and recognize it's been out of step. So right back in a moment, we got a high sign here from production. We're going on a break. Okay, we're going to break in a few minutes and be right back on Coach Hogg's Locker Room. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Welcome back to Coach Hogg's Locker Room here on Monday. We like to have a little fun with our listeners and our viewers regularly if we can on Monday and find some good, wholesome entertainment here for you that is just absolutely the essential kind of conversations that we all ought to be engaged in, and that is how to accept rejection, how to believe in yourself, how to work as a team, how to mentor, how to be mentored, and keep your uh, faith and keep on believing in what you're doing and sooner or later things fall in place hopefully for you. So many people today, Lee, seem to want, we're talking with Lee McGriff, whom we'll never, ever get all the stories out of and, um, <laughs> because we just don't have, we'd have to take a year. But, you know, it seems to me that we're dealing, 
I see these, and I don't want to get too off the out of the out of the lane here, but we got a whole generation of people almost a different different attitude about things. They want it right now. Um, they want to um, from the food they get to the to the uh, I don't know what it is instant gratification instant gratification thing. Yeah. So I still believe sports is the right place to go to send your grandson to send your son. Um, my mother was a PE teacher. Um, uh, it's just something that we we learned to do, and that was uh, work out and take care of ourselves, try to eat properly, and and she was uh, one of the first ones. She lettered in soccer in the '30s at University of Illinois. Mm. Wow! And, How about that? Yeah, yeah. Can, and you believe yeah. it? I mean, and women's sports in. Yeah. But in the Big Ten, it was a little different. They they really had a, the Big Ten was kind of ahead of itself on women's sports. They had a lot of women's sports, paid a lot of attention to it. Let's shift over for a minute to a few minutes we've got left here. I think we've got about 15. Something you and I and everybody else in the athletic world talk about, and that's NIL and transfer portal and all that. And, of course, I'm assuming now a lot of people read Strickland's comments about, well, this is a game. It's here. We've got to play it. Um, he seemed to say we got enough money we can compete. But at the same time, nobody seems satisfied with it. I think it's going to have to be re uh, revised. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I, I, I think uh, even read um, Scott Strickland over the weekend some comments about um, he he put a positive slant on it, but it is it is so uh, uh, it, it's out it's a wild west. It it just has no boundaries, no governors around it, and there there's so many unintended bad consequences that, that are going to come spinning out of this. And, you know, I, I, I had time in professional football uh, two years, and um, during that time you knew different guys got different endorsements and different opportunities, but every, everybody got paid. It was professional football. So, you know, if, if, you, if you got to do an endorsement for – a uh, car dealership, and I didn't. I still got paid, but I, I I may have been jealous of you doing that. Some guys may have been, but I wasn't mad or mad at you. We all were getting paid. You just got a little more for whatever reason. When you got the NIL, there's going to be some guys that get a bunch of money, and most guys getting none. And part of what I know everybody knows this, but when I talk to my teammates or, you know, my sons or whoever who have both played, you sit in that locker room and you're the number one running back and I'm the number two running back and we kind of split time, which is the way they do it. So you get the ball 15 times a game. And so, you know, you, I get it five. So you're getting more yards, you're making more plays, you get an NIL job or deal and you're making, maybe you're making $25,000 a year. And I know these are based on things we're hearing. That's peanuts. Now I'm, I'm getting really disgusted with these coaches because you give it to me 15 times. Now that we both know Ward from playing and coaching that that, that goes on anyway, guys that, that play, if you don't believe in yourself and think you're not better than the other guy, we you, you'll there. never play anyway. You won't be there. So that goes on naturally. But when you attach money to it, it gets uglier. So now, being the devil's advocate, 
if you get if they give me this ball, I'll I'll do better than you because I already think that way, and I'll get more money. You're not going, you're not coach. You're not going to give me the ball. I'm leaving because mm-hmm. I'm going over to mm-hmm. Timbuktu, and they will give me the ball, and I will get a deal. And the way that festers itself, it, it, it just there's so many ways that this just can go awry. Uh, because again, it, it's it's not like in professional sports where people have salaries or, or you know what they're getting paid, and then there's there's differences, but everybody's getting paid. That's not the case. So, you know, the haves and the haves nots are, are just it, it's going to create tremendous uh, morale problems on the team. But the other part of it is now with the transfer portal, as you say, instant gratification. Anyway, guys, back in the day, it used to be admirable that you fought through it and you overcame being down in the hole and climbing out and finding your way onto the field. And maybe it took you longer than you wanted, but that built your character and you, you were really ended up being a better player as a result because you had that kind of grit to work through it. They, guys are just gone now, just gone. It's too easy to go. So um, it worries me. Well, it's going to be interesting if it makes any difference to the fan. The fan may still just want performance and don't, they don't care how they get it. And I wonder about that. I, I, and I, that might not be where you see it. But I think you're going to see it in drying up the alumni world because you and I both know that the loyalty to the school was what builds the alumni booster organization, which ironically could be feeding the hand that's going to wipe it out by pumping money into the collective. I've thought this through. Correct me if I'm off the rails here, but I'm a big booster, and I'm loyal to the University of Florida. I came here, and this and that wing another, and pump money into the collective to pay these guys. And they don't care about that, which I care about the way I do, and in so doing, I'm destroying or eroding or negatively impacting this loyalty. Yeah. I don't see the loyalty. See, more than anything, it's taking the loyalty out of the... I, I agree. You said that to me before, and I, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, one of, one of the things that, that is so wonderful or traditionally is with college sports is we go back to Larry Libertor. He was a gator. From beginning to end, mm-hmm. Larry Dupree, he was a Gator from beginning to end. Steve Spurrier, Gator from beginning to end, and you go on and on. And I don't say, you know, Larry Libertor. Mm-hmm. I remember when he played for South Carolina, and then he came for. He's a Gator, mm-hmm. and on and on, and 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 the fans get attached to the people and their Gators. They they went to the same school. A lot of the alumni went to. You know, they they finished it here. They had that in common, but they played for the Gators. Now, guys and women, they come and go, and you it gets back to the loyalty, and all of that is eroding. And, uh, of course, not to get off on this subject, but I've always hated the Calipari one-and-done thing. Mm-hmm. Those aren't college basketball players. Mm-hmm. But it does worry me, to your point. The loyalty, the continuity that's been such a part of college athletics forever um, is eroding. Well, you wonder if 20 years from now or 30 years, whatever we're doing post-activity uh, here, 
would be possible under the day scheme. Because we're sitting here talking about developing players uh, on, on off the field that became the backbone of the institution. We're not going to be talking about that 20, 30 years from now because they don't develop that way. They don't develop as a result of their relationship with the institution. It's all about money. And it's going to be, the other thing that comes up that people have already talked about, approached me about, is what they've asked me questions. I don't have the answers. Of course, nobody really does. What about the women's sports? You know, we worked like crazy with Title IX to kind of get a level playing field. And now you can tell me that we're going to spend as much money on bringing a great University of Florida basketball player, female basketball player here, as we'll spend on trying to get the hotshot quarterback away from Tennessee here? That ain't going to happen. No, like, you're exactly that right. ain't going to happen. You're exactly right. It, it's uh... – yeah, it, it, it's it's not just stuck on men's sports. It permeates in, in every direction, all the sports. And, you know, we've got so many things that I've not been out there much, but everybody has, loves it, loves the players. They do well. Let's, let's take ladies lacrosse. My golly, what a rugged game, you know? Mm -hmm. And what a character-building thing that must be. And they're out there playing, I suppose, on a shoestring budget, compared, certainly compared to what we're going to spend on just one player at the University of Florida football team, or maybe even the basketball team. Yeah, no, you're right. So You're right. It, it, I would like to see him go ahead and drop the student-athlete part of this whole thing because it's just call it what it is. I mean, I don't even know a student, take away the student, if you, I don't even know if you can call it an athlete now. It's not really an athlete, is it? It's a, it's a commodity, isn't it? More than anything else, I mean, if I were playing and I had talent and I were really great, I'd be bargaining like crazy from Oh, myself. sure. Oh, sure. I'd be bargaining like crazy. Hey, listen, I'm better than you think I am, and I want the bucks up front, you know? Absolutely. And when I get the bucks up front, if I don't do well, I don't like it, I'll skip. I'll go. Somebody else can get me for more. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the, the idea when it's stated by the NCAA that you cannot use the NIL as a recruiting tool – is beyond naive, beyond naive. That just like there's honor among thieves with everything, that uh, even before the NIL existed, there's deals made, things done in the recruiting process that stays, you know, on the lowdown, and and people don't know about it, but it, it comes out to play. But you know, the the, the recruiting process is going to say we can't put anything in writing, but and maybe you get somebody else to tell somebody, you know, that um, uh, you tell Arch Manning, listen, there'll be nothing in writing and may not be a coach saying it. You come to the University of Texas and uh, the day you step foot on there, here, it won't even matter financially if you play professional football because right. we've, we've got, you know, uh, we got oil and we got this and we got that and, and you just come – you, you come to Texas, and you will be set for life. And it's coming. It's here. We're staring at it. You know, I got one. Other, how much time we got production? Five minutes? One other thing has happened as long as we were going down to the, all the changes that have happened in the sports world. And I realized it now because if you want to go to an event, in case you all haven't gone, the tickets are on your phone. Ha! Well, you know what that's done to scalping? It's just about stopped it completely. How about that? 
you can't, and I know fellas who've made quite a handsome amount of money off sure. the scalping tickets. Yeah. I mean, they've got it down to a science. And I saw one of them who shall remain unnamed. Uh, he was pretty good at it and has been good at it for a long time. Not that there's anything wrong with it. He could, if you wanted a ticket, you go get it. And he had it. You yeah. know? And uh, <laughs> it, depending upon the, uh, the, the uh, demand for it, well, it, you know, you were willing to pay it. So you had a, you had a seller and a buyer and in real estate world, we had a deal, right? So same thing with the ticket. Not now, because you can't transfer that thing out of that doggone wallet. And uh, I saw one of the fellows yesterday going into one of the games, and I said, how's it working? He said, it won't work. It doesn't work. Ah, you know? Hadn't thought about that one. It doesn't work. Of course, I hadn't had to join that world, but I, I probably will next year. But I've been doing the radio for so long, football games. I, I, don't, I don't have to have my – I get tickets. I'm a season ticket holder, and I transfer it to people or my family, you know, but I've yet had to walk through that gate and do that. I'm intimidated by that. I've never had to do it. Well, yeah. Uh, what, what you're initially going to – I'm just learning the process, and my tech guys here know it really well, but, you know, it comes through Ticketmaster, and, then for, and you can transfer them. I could transfer them as long as they're in Ticketmaster over to you. That's right. Once you put them in that wallet, then you go, you, they're in your wallet. You know, you can take somebody with you on there, but it's still on your phone. You're not going to transfer it once, as I understand it, not in that wallet. So it's uh, it, it, then I'm trying to imagine if you've got 90,000 people, I guess, it, you know, before it was tickets, they scanned the ticket. Now you're holding the phone up to something that scans your phone. Right. And it assumes that everybody's got a phone. It does. Isn't that amazing? It does. It does. I, I, yeah. And, you know, it, it's a generational thing. And I'm, I'm pretty aware that um, when this all happened, of course, COVID forced it. I, mean, I guess that, so. They, I they, guess they, so. Yeah, yeah, everybody used COVID because they didn't want people touching tickets and yeah. all that. And it's more, it's, it's more uh, I'm sure, efficient for the institutions. But a lot of the older people don't love not having that hard ticket in their hand, you know. But that bird has flown. Oh, There's no yeah, going yeah. back. And, and, uh, but I guess there is po it's possible. You can still get a paper ticket, but you got to go to some some effort to get it, and it's not going to be it's going to be encouraging you the other way to get with the world, uh, get on the machine, and let the machine take you on in. And once you're in, you can't go out and come back in. Right, you're in there. Right. So the other day there was a lady sitting next to me in an event, and really cold day, and I noticed that she went out and came back in with a blanket. I said, "How'd you do that?" She says. We keep one ticket we don't use. Ah. Ah. There you go. So when we go out, we can show that ticket as if we're coming in for the first time. Of course, you know, Ward, a lot of reasons people used to go out is, is to... Imbibe. Uh, get, yeah, imbibe. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's the English word. That's right. that's, that shows your high education, imbibe. That's but, why but, I coach now, but I can't right. go to the board. But, but, but now you talk about another change. Imbibing is going to be very convenient inside the venues, inside the stadiums now. I mean, that's evolving too, which is another giant change. You can drink beer at the baseball games. Yeah. And wine. And wine. And I'm sure other things are coming. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's an, talking with Lee McGriff, a long time buddy, and a whole sports uh, pedigree here, if you will, that he has, and portfolio and all the above. And you're making some changes in his life. He's been the commentator, one of the commentators. Uh, I go back to the day of Otis Boggs, and when I first came here, 
we'll close out maybe with this story. It was so funny. The older guys who'd been here at the university said, you got to listen to Otis Boggs. He has this thing he says, it's a twisting end over end spiral. <laughs> you know, what, what a wonderful man. Worked his whole life at the College of Journalism. And, uh, you know, he, he had his own talk shows. And, but, Jim Finch worked he, with him. He was, yes. And, and he was an institution. Uh, David Steele followed him, which is where I began uh, working with David Steele, being the, the analyst with David Steele. David Steele went on to the Orlando Magic, and in came Mick Hubert, who became legendary. And Mick's been there, I think, 32, 33 years now. But, 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 but the original was, was Otis Box. Oh, yeah. He was something. Twisting end over end spiral. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was once upon a time the way in which we engaged with the Gators if we weren't there personally in the stands. And, and uh, we listened to it when we always listened to the voice of the Gators those days. And I miss the Here Come the Gators with Jim Finch. Oh, yeah. yeah that was really – I, I wish somehow, some way that, that – see, here's the thing, I think. There ought to be more tradition. And that was a tradition. Oh, man. Now, we built a new tradition with uh, Tom Petty and won't back down. I'm, I'm okay with that. Of course, Tom would probably be shocked if he knew about it, but it's okay. Yeah. Um, he had arrived on Florida Field as a singer. That would be something for him. You know, I taught him in high school. So, uh, but but uh, here come the Gators was really, and the way Jim said it, here you know, there was nobody that, could say it like that. That was legendary. Yeah, that was legendary. What we got in production? I ain't got the watch on. We're good? By golly, we're good. We're, oh, I mean, like, we're, we're, at, we're at the 10 o'clock mark. Okay, we're at the 10 o'clock clock. We can kind of do what we want to do here, but uh, we want to keep don't want to keep Lee too too much longer. But uh, I had a lot of fun here on Coach Hogg's locker room with Lee McGriff. And Lee is um, really active in the insurance business here. You know, your whole family has always been in the insurance business. and. Yeah, there's That's a lot a of McGriffs that have been in the insurance business, and the funny part about it is none of us have ever worked together. Isn't that, that, is that that's right? That's right. Everybody that had right? different different agencies. I didn't that know in, that. That includes my dad. He had three brothers, um, and two of the three were in the insurance business. None of them went into business. Perry McGriff, my first cousin, I, he had his agency. I have mine. There's Mark McGriff, who has his own. So we all get it. Really, we do. Everybody got along great. But nobody went into business with each other. Obviously, but you got a son now coming along. Is Travis in? Travis is is uh, is a um, is is a partner and part of McGriff Williams Insurance now. Good, good. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we had a good time today. I hope you had a good time. Of course, we will be playing this again on wordscottfiles.com, where we'll archive it, and also Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I don't know where all tune in radio. It goes out there on. Listen to it 24-7, and you can ship it along if you copy the link and send it along to your friends if you're a real Lee McGriff fan, as I am. And you can get to listen to this um, uh, all over again, which uh, maybe won't put you to sleep. Maybe it'll kind of <laughs> keep you fired up and be better than the stimulant cup of coffee, huh? <laughs> so um, we appreciate you tuning in on the Mondays for the Coach Hog Locker Room. We'll be back to kind of our own controversial hot spots tomorrow, perhaps, but uh, – on Wednesday, we're going to have a good show. We're going to have, um, I don't know if you know Josh Taylor or not. He is a young man who has uh, written a tremendous song and sung it. It's just really waiting to be discovered, I think, about uh, he's a deputy sheriff in Gilchrist County. And you know what happened in Gilchrist County. Two sheriffs were deputy sheriffs were sitting in a lunchroom there. A couple, I mean, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a guy came in and killed him. 
And it really shook up that small town, shook up mm. everybody, shook up law enforcement. And Josh has written a really moving song about it. So if, you, if you're around, you want to catch that. Um, he's really um, one of these fellows that has talk about rejection. He's been working on this story, this song, for two or three years now since that happened. And, you know, it had bumps in, uh, in the road, finding a studio, finding a good backup band, and trying this and trying that getting it heard, you know, all that sort of thing happens. And, and we just I just hope it all lines up for him because it's really called Hometown Strong, mm. about how you rally around each other. Mm. But the really good thing about it is it's a country song, country and western song, and it's about rural communities, about how that's where the community is in America, you know, right down there, and we all know each other. Uh, Trenton, for example, has one high school. You know, it's a great high school. And I've always... Yeah, back when my day when I was talking about the coaching world, I uh, we had one high school. It was Gainesville High School and Lincoln. Right, right. that was it. And then of course we got by the Holtz East Side later on. But we just had one big high school, and we had to go all over the place to find somebody to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to Tennessee. We went to South Carolina. Um, uh, we never went down to Miami. That was a long trek. We went up to, to the Panhandle and played Pensacola, Panama City, but that was a pretty long haul. So it was nobody around big enough, uh, around here, big enough, strong enough to play us. So, oh yeah, you know we had we had some good guys. Well, thanks so much, production, for helping us out today, and thank you uh, for coming by, uh, Lee. And you're always invited back, and I uh, look forward to talking to you. Uh, maybe by the time we've accumulated some more miles on us, uh, we'll have something else tall tale to tell you. But uh, enjoyed it. <laughs> enjoyed thank it you. too. Uh, we're going to sign off now. Warthog Command Center, and more importantly, Coach Hogg's locker room. Have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow.